0: You know, I don't know about your home or what your house is like, but one of the frequent, ongoing conversations that we have in our house revolves around, it seems like, everything has to do with gifts and presents. And, uh, you know, we, we've got young kids, and so I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but it's not uncommon for us to hear conversations or questions like, Hey, Mom, or Hey, Dad guess what I want for my birthday, or guess what I want for Christmas. And so it it doesn't matter what time of the year it is, it seems like that our children always have an idea of what they want, what kind of present uh, they would like to open on, on their special day. And and I, I gotta tell you that I kinda tend to play the role of instigator, uh, in our house when it comes to our kids, when it comes to conversations like these. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. It's not uncommon, uh, when maybe my boys bring up what they want for their birthday or for Christmas to kinda follow up with a, well, I thought you told mom and dad you wanted the new Barbie house or something. I mean, you, re, you, you, you don't want the Barbie house or, or maybe like with my little girl, she'll be talking about a, a dress that she wants. And I'll say, well, you know, what about Spider-Man jammies? So, I mean, you would look really cute in Spider-Man jammies. And uh, so that kind of sarcasm, I, I call it effective parenting, you know, uh, in our house. That's, that's how it works. But I remember a few years ago, I think Luke was around four at the time. It was Christmas and we were at grandma's house and it was time to open up gifts. And so uh, Luke had all of his gifts and front of him, and he ripped into the first gift, and somehow, he accidentally had picked up one of Kate's gifts, and sure enough, when he opened it, it was like a pink dress or something, and as he opened it, he went, no! And he, he threw the dress. My wife looked at me at the mo- in this moment with this death look of like, are you responsible for this? And I promise to this day that I had on, on the Bible that I had nothing to do you know, with this accident, but uh, it, w- it, was, it was quite funny. Uh, how many of you enjoy opening presents? It doesn't matter how old you are, right? I mean, okay, you enjoy uh, receiving a present. You get excited. There's this anticipation, uh, and whether it be a gift that you would receive on your birthday or Christmas, or maybe it's something like Mother's Day or or Father's Day, you know, even as adults, uh, there are certain things that we hope for. There are certain things that we anticipate, but like kids, every once in a while, we don't get what we want. Or maybe as adults, we never you know, seem to get what we want, and so we're forced to deal with disappointment. And while a kid would deal with disappointment and anger or maybe with tears, well, we could just kind of say that as adults we get a little bit better at disguising our disappointment, and, uh, and so we go on. Now, uh, most of you who are married, um, some of you know what it's like to have a spouse that just doesn't get it. Uh, when it comes to gift, ladies, is this true at all that you know, maybe you're looking to a date that's coming up, and so you told your husband, these are the jeans that I want. Do you see them? Uh, this is the size that I wear. No surprises. This is what I want. And so, but you decide, fellas, that you're going to be different this year. You're thinking outside of the box. You want to be creative. And so it, it comes to that moment, and you hand your wife the gift, and it, the box seems to be about the right size, and she wants the jeans, but she opens them, and they're not the jeans and maybe instead you've got her something like Nutrisystem Foods or something like that. I mean, it's the worst possible gift that you could give to someone or receive in a moment like that. Or guys, you know, maybe the same for you too because you've been dropping hints that you want the new iPhone, all right? And you've made it very clear, and so you've got your gift. You've got the box. And you know, this is about the right size. It could be it. And then you open it up, and you find that it's just a set of, like, nose hair clippers, like... Because, like, that's just the way the life rolls sometimes. You don't get what you want, you just you get what you need. And so you end up with something like nose hair trimmers. And so we all know what it's like to have disappointing moments, uh, you know, where you were expecting something like the jeans or you were hoping for something like the iPhone and you get something completely different. But here's what I want to know. I, I I just wonder if some of you have experienced a moment like this in your life. I mean, maybe if you recently graduated, or you're getting ready to graduate from college or something, um, that when you started school, you had all these hopes and dreams and this idea of what you would do and where you would live and what that would look like, but you don't have a job, and you've got nothing lined up right now, and maybe if graduation's coming, I mean, you just kind of know that you're going to end up back at home with mom and dad, and you're not particularly excited about it, and honestly, they're probably not either, And but it's just kind of what you're getting, and it's just something that you have to deal with, and... Uh, this particular situation, or or you get married and there are all these hopes and there are all these plans and dreams and you put all of this energy and all of this effort into getting ready for the wedding and the reception and, and, and things went great and people would tell you, you know, it was, it, it was a perfect wedding. But now, a year or two later, years later, all you've got is a marriage. And you discover that it's hard. And you never expected that it would be like this. Um, I I ran into someone just recently, and someone I hadn't seen in a while, and and they got married a little while back. And I I could could just kind of tell in the conversation there was just this vibe that it's not going as we hoped. It's been more difficult than we ever imagined. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, every single one of us. I mean, how many of us have stories of different aspects of our lives where we went into it hoping for one thing, but only disappointed to find that it's something else. And that's what we see in Ruth. And that's the story that we're looking at today. It's in chapter 9 in the storybook, if you've been following along in the storybook, or maybe you've been reading along on your own. It's a real short book, right in the Old Testament. And if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there, and we'll have the verses up on the screen. We're going to just look at this narrative today and jumping over portions of it, but we just want to kind of get an idea of this story of Ruth. And, and if you've read the story, if you read it last week, or if you're familiar with the story at all, and I asked you to give me one word that kind of sums up the story, or what's this story all about? I, I can only imagine we'd hear different kinds of words. We'd hear things like, what's well, a great love story? All right, and that would be true. I mean, there's a great love story involved in this book of Ruth. Now, some of you might say, well, it's a great story of God's provision and his provision during the really difficult times. I mean, or maybe it's a story of disappointment. We're going to see a lot of that, or or anger. But the great thing about this story is that in some way, shape, or form, I think every single one of us can relate because what we see in Ruth's story and as we're going to meet in Naomi, I mean, All of us just kind of go through those similar seasons and circumstances in our life, too. Now, just to give you a little background, Ruth's story takes place during a very difficult time in the history of Israel. We talked last week, if you were here, about the period of Judges a 330-year period that was a very difficult time in the history of Israel uh, and for the people because they continuously turned their back on God. They disobey, and then they were forced to face the consequences uh, for their decisions. And, and so if you're at Ruth, uh, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, just notice that how it starts. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. All right, so again, contextually, we see that, okay, This is in that period that even we were looking at last week. So in the days when the judges ruled, and we know that there was disobedience and followed by consequences, and so the consequence that we learn of is that there was a famine in the land. And I just think it's interesting to point out there that, I mean, think about how many times throughout the nine chapters in the story that we've looked at so far that we've read about things like famine and pain and wandering and wilderness. I mean, you can't help but ask, is God trying to make a point? I mean, is there a point that he's trying to make that we don't always get it? We may not always completely understand, but God does some of his greatest work in us when we go through some of the most difficult seasons in our life. And Ruth's story is no different. So let's look at a couple of verses together. Again, looking at uh, starting at verse 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Okay, so one of the first people that we read about in this story of Ruth is a guy by the name of Elimelech. And he and his family were caught up in this famine with little to no resources and no food to eat, and so they had to make a choice and a very desperate choice. I mean, they could stay in the land that was given to them by God, or they could move off to a foreign country to a place where the people didn't know God, this land called Moab. Well, Elimelech, as the leader of the home, makes a tragic decision, a decision that would have great implications for his family, and he decides to move his family away from God's land, the land given to them, and into this place called Moab. Now, in verse 2, we read it says that his wife was a woman by the name of Naomi. And Naomi, or at least the names in the Old Testament, usually had great significance. I mean, there was, a, there was a story, there was a plan, there was a pattern behind each name. I mean, they always meant something. And Naomi's name meant sweet and pleasant. And that's really important to consider. And we'll talk about why that's significant in just a couple of minutes. But they had two sons by the name of Malon and Kilion, which, interestingly enough, their names mean sick and dying which I sort of think is kind of unusual. I mean, it'd kind of be like naming your kids today like bird flu and rotavirus or something. I mean, you know, we've got got sick and dying. Meet my kids Malon and Kilion. But anyways, Elimelech moves his family out of Israel and into one of the most ungodly areas in the world at the time, a place called Moab. And they get there, and in verse 3 it says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then some years pass, But just in two verses later, we pick up in verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. And so they moved to Moab to escape death. But now Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, the men of the family, are all dead. And this is where the story takes a real significant turn. I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, it's a difficult time for this family or for at least the family that's left. And this is where we meet the real characters in the story, Naomi and a woman named Ruth. Okay, so while in Moab, Malon and Kilion, before they died, they married two women, uh, Orpah and Ruth, are daughters-in-law, to uh, Naomi, uh, but now they're widows too. And in a culture like this, I mean, there was no help available for widows. I mean, this is before welfare. I mean, there are no churches in Moab to help. And and the Moabites hated Israel anyways. And the Israelites hated the Moabites too. And so Naomi's in a real difficult place as a widow you know, with no one to support her, and these two daughter-in-laws near her, and so she's in trouble. And so after losing her, two, her husband and her two sons, Naomi decide that, decides that she doesn't have many options, and so she determines that she'll make the trip. She'll turn around and, and go back home. And so one day she says to Orpah and Ruth, um, you stay here. Uh, you're young women. Um, you're from Moab. I mean, this is your home, and there's still a chance that you can remarry. There's still a chance that you can have children, but I don't belong here. I mean, there's nothing for me in this place. And so I'm going to go back home and and I'm going to see if if I can't still make something of life. But but even more than that, I mean, she was basically saying, you know what? Stay here and hang on to your own gods because my God has let me down. And and in fact, I, I would go as far to say that he is directly responsible for the pain in my life. He's not taking care of me. I mean, you could say that Naomi's given up. And so Orpah agrees to stay in Moab, but Ruth refuses to leave Naomi. And even if it means moving to a new home and a new culture like this in Israel, I mean, she's not about to abandon her mother-in-law and Naomi. In Ruth one sixteen, Ruth says, don't urge me. She says this to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now, that verse might sound somewhat familiar to you. There's a chance that you heard it at a wedding or something. I mean, it's a verse to highlight what it means for a bride and groom to pledge that commitment and that support. And regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, I mean, we'll stay together. We'll get through this. But in this case and in its context, it involves a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. I wonder how many of you would pledge that same support for your mother-in-law, but but Ruth's willing to do that here. And and just notice what's happening here. I mean, just notice this special bond that's developing between Ruth and Naomi. But I also want you to see that even though Ruth grew up in a family and in a culture that hated Israel's God, and even with the pain and the circumstances of Naomi's life, maybe at the hands of her God, Ruth is beginning to see something good about the God of Israel. Uh, Beth Moore writes it like this. She says, I think Ruth, the pagan from Moab, had more faith in God at this moment than Naomi the Israelite. I mean, there was something in Ruth that knew, despite her mother-in-law's despair, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, was not a God who abandoned the needy and left them bitter and alone, as Naomi claimed. Rather, Ruth trusted that this God was a God of mercy and compassion, who might even be able to love a widow from Moab, an alien, a foreigner, and a cursed people. She trusted that she, even she, could run to this God, Naomi's God, that Ruth wanted as her God too, and that even though she was a foreign descent, this God would have mercy on her and she could find refuge under his wings. She dared to believe that this God of the Hebrews wanted her. So verse 19 says that the two women... Uh, went on their way until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, Ruth and Naomi, they they make this difficult journey back to Naomi's hometown, a place called Bethlehem. And stop there for just a second because I I want you to recognize the name of the place where they're returning to. And again, this has significance that we'll look at in just a moment. But they come to Bethlehem, they return to Bethlehem, and it's a town, historians say, of about 200 or so people uh, at the time. And so when Naomi returns, it's big news. I mean, everyone knows, and so the people come together to see her, to greet her, and most likely everyone knows that they left. And, and so there's still probably a lot of talk about them leaving, and I can't believe that they would go, how could they? And uh, But now they're coming back, but really, I mean, they're not all coming back, because things have really changed, and... The writer says that the whole town was stirred asking, can this be Naomi? Now, some scholars believe that Naomi's physical appearance over these years and through this pain and hardship had changed so much that just one glance at her and everyone was talking. Now, look at it. I mean, look at how things change. That and remember that the name Naomi means pleasant and sweet. But here's how Naomi responds to them over in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Anymore, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so she's basically saying, hey, let's be very clear. I don't want there to be any doubt about it whatsoever. I'm upset. I'm angry. When I left, I was full. Now that I come back, I am empty. I mean, this life that I had hoped for, and she goes on to say, look what God has done to me. I mean, He has made my life very bitter. He's brought all of this pain and this misfortune upon me. It's His fault. And I wonder if thoughts like that sounded all familiar to you or maybe if you've even never said anything like that before especially when you consider your story and maybe some of the things that you've gone through and just to be real i mean if you had a chance to share your story with a group of people and you know you would do something like that i'm sure some of you could probably tell a story where some of us would say i can't blame you for being upset i, I can't blame you for you know the bitterness you know i, I think about the family that lost their little boy at the finish line in Boston this past week. They're just there to watch my dad finish the race. Or, you know, the wife and children whose husband didn't come home from the plant in Texas. Or, you know, even when you think about the circumstances and all the rain this past week across Indiana and other places and people that woke up to flooded cars and flooded homes and maybe just even the escape for your own life. What's God up to? What's this all about? And why does it appear that he has it out for me? And and if you read the story of Ruth, you know, again, you can't help but wonder as you get started into it, okay, what's this all about? Like, where's this going? What's got up to? And you, you could say that it's about survival, and you could say that it's a love story. And you don't have to get very far into the story before you realize, oh, wait, I see it. It's a story of loss. It's a story of pain and misfortune. I and mean, it's about a woman who loses everything. I mean, she loses her home and then her land, and then she loses her husband, and then she loses her two boys. And it's definitely a story of loss. And it may be, but the question that I want to ask of the story for you and me today is is this. Does does it have to be a story about loss? I mean, yes, she loses a lot, and not just Naomi, I mean Ruth too, but does the story have to be about loss? I mean, is that what the story has to be all about? Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. And uh, you might be familiar with him. He wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, just been a a, a fascinating man to watch in his ministry. And um, I've had the opportunity to meet him twice, like no more than like five minutes total of interaction with him. But uh, wow, what what a great guy who loves Jesus and is just doing everything that he can to help people find their way back to God. And a little over two weeks ago, you probably saw this in the news, his 27-year-old son, a son that had battled mental illness and depression for many years, took a gun and then took his own life. And when I read that story, and if you read that story, or maybe just even in any similar situation like that, I mean, you just can't help but wonder or imagine, okay, how do you go on? I mean, how does something like that happen? I mean, suicide is an awful thing, and I mean, if you're a parent, if you're close to somebody who takes their life like that, I mean, how how do you over, ever overcome something like that? I, I follow Rick Warren on Twitter, and I just think it's been interesting to watch some of the things that he's written and to kind of get a glimpse into his grief and his faith and where it's going to go from here, and I want to share with you just a few of the tweets that he has shared over the last couple of weeks since his son's death. This is one of the first ones where he wrote, Grieving is hard. Grieving as public figures, harder. Grieving while haters celebrate your pain, hardest. Then he writes, Your note sustained us. Check out this next one. He says, After four days finally got to see my son's body, he wasn't in it anymore. Absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. This next one. Someone on the internet sold Matthew an unregistered gun. I pray he seeks God's forgiveness. I forgive him. Matthew 6.15. Grief is God's tool for handling life's losses. If you don't grieve, you get stuck. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. This is, I don't have to know why everything happens, since I know God is good, He loves me, and life on earth isn't the whole story. And then this next one I think is really key for us today and for this story in Ruth. Bad things happen to everyone. It isn't your experiences that define your life. It's your responses that make or break you. Here's what I think he's saying. I I think he's saying that if you've experienced loss in your life, loss doesn't have to be the end of it. Like loss doesn't have to be the defining moment for the rest of your story. And it's one thing for me to say that, but it's another for a guy that's grieving like Rick Warren to say it. I mean, he's just basically saying rather than your life being defined by a loss, Life could be, or can be, defined by your response to the loss. If you're taking notes, maybe you'd write it like this: I, I can't control what happens, but I can control what happens after it happens, to a degree. You know, and for us, I mean it just means that if you, as you reach this point in your loss, you know, you reach this point in your story where you just decide, you have to decide: is this going to define me, or is my response? what happened to me? Am I going to let that define who I am? Or, you know, is my story going to be a story of loss and pain and letdown? Or could my story be about something different? And that's hard. That takes time. It takes grieving. It, it takes understanding. And, and I think it was hard for Naomi. I mean, not just to get swallowed up into the pain of the lower story, and like Naomi, I know I'm guilty, we, we tend to get focused on what's happening in front of us and, and around us. I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, opening the gift wrap box at Christmas and you just discover it's another sweater. Like, uh, you know, hey, wow, again, I, I got another sweater. And maybe you're disappointed. And so in this moment, Naomi says, don't call me sweet or pleasant, call me bitter, I'm empty. But here's what we're going to find in her story. I mean, if there's one word to describe Naomi's story, it doesn't have to be loss. But the word that we're looking for is the word redemption. And it's a God who is able to redeem any and every situation, including your story and my story too. So look over at verse 22. There still in chapter 1, it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Here we even see that maybe there is hope. Because remember, they left the land when there was a famine, but now they're coming back to the land and there's a harvest that's taking place. But then you've got to ask, well, what in the world can two widowed women, especially in a culture like this, do uh, to survive? Well, interestingly enough, uh, long before the government ever created programs to help people, to help widows in need, uh, to create programs for the poor and hurting, God commissioned the church to do it. Like And he is still asked us to, to be involved in that work that he's doing in this world. And in the Old Testament system, it was recorded in the book of Leviticus that those who were poor were allowed to go around to the local field and pick up the pieces of grain to pick up the sheaves that those harvesting had dropped and left behind. And so in Ruth chapter 2 now, uh, starting in verse 2, uh, we want to see what happens. It says, and Ruth the Moabite, which I have to stop there because I think it's just interesting and fascinating that the writer here, the historian here, wants to wants it to preserve the record that, hey, remember, she's a Moabite. She She is a foreigner living in a strange place. She's a despised person living in this foreign home, and so she's got all of the odds stacked against her. But it says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And then it says, as it turned out. Which I think is great because it's almost like a foreshadowing, meaning that, hey, everything that's about to happen now, it's not coincidence. It's not by chance was that it turned out she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And so Ruth ends up in this field, a field that belongs to this man by the name of Boaz, and he's a wealthy man with a reputation of being kind and generous, and he happens to be a kinsman uh, or close relative Uh, to this woman Naomi, and we don't know for sure how Boaz is related to Naomi, but we are told, if you go over to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, to the first chapter, and you read the genealogy tracking all the way to the birth of Jesus, we're told who Boaz's mother happened to be. As it turned out, Boaz's mama was a woman by the name of Rahab. And you remember her, right? I mean, we talked about her a couple of weeks ago. I mean, she's the prostitute from Jericho. Rahab had aided the Israelite spies who had gone into the city uh, before the final invasion. And as a way of helping them, their promise to her was, you know, your family, your lives will be spared. And so here's Boaz, the son of a prostitute in Rahab, and he is able to show kindness and protection. And it doesn't take long before Boaz is kind of checking out Ruth either, you know, and, and, and wondering about her and wondering if she needs a husband or not. And so Naomi coaches Ruth into this really weird ritual whereby a woman can let a man know that she's kind of digging him. You know, like, the, hey, if you're interested, I'm interested, I'm looking too. And Naomi knows that it's harvest time, which means that at nighttime, because there's usually a big party every night, that Boaz is probably uh, going to be on the threshing floor after the party. And so here's what Naomi tells Ruth. And in Ruth 3, 4, here's what Naomi, the advice that she gives her daughter-in-law. She says, hey, when he lies down, Note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Getting a little hot here, but uh, I know we had a bunch of men that just woke up. Hey, what's going on? What are we talking about? So, but hold on for a second, all right? Because it's not what you think. And and even though there was a lot of sexual depravity, and this day, um, this is the farthest thing from a hookup. um, Because in Ruth, 3.9 Three nine, uh, she says I am your servant Ruth and then she said spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer I, I like the translation kinsman redeemer better and, and here's what this whole encounter means um, in this particular day putting a blanket over a woman was like putting a ring on her finger I mean it was like a proposal for marriage and so you know Ruth saying hey I'm I'm into you. I would love for you to marry me. I'm not really proposing, but I'm sort of kind of forcing uh, the issue a little bit. I I wouldn't be disappointed if you did. And so she's being a bit forward, and here's how Boaz responded in verse 10. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And so he's interested, but if you read for yourself, it goes on to explain that there's another relative uh, that has the first rights to redeem the land and to redeem the widow. And so Boaz says, hey, I've got to go check into some things first, um, but then I'll get back to you. And let me just explain here what it means in ancient Israel, this concept of the kinsman-redeemer law. Um, When a man fell onto uh, with his family onto hard times and was forced to sell his land, his nearest relative or what was referred to as the kinsman redeemer of the day uh, was called on to step in and to purchase the land or if needed to buy back the land if it was sold during difficult times Uh, to an outsider. And this was just a way of keeping the relative's property uh, in the family and to keep it from coming under the ownership of someone else outside of the tribe. Now, a lot of that probably sounds weird to you and to me. I mean, this idea of guardianship and buying the land and buying the widow and inheriting the wife, but it was all a part of the Jewish culture. I mean, this, this was just everyday sort of stuff in Israel. And it really made sense to Naomi and her people because the promised land, when the people entered the land, it was divided up according to the different tribes and according to the different families. And so it was important, it was desirable to keep the family uh, in the land. And so then if the heir died, then it would fall to the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, to redeem that loss. And so uh, the redeemer would, the kinsman redeemer would, would, would buy the property, uh, would marry the widow, uh, potentially have a descendant with the widow, who would then inherit the family's property, so that the land wouldn't be lost. Again, it was about keeping everything in the family. So Boaz comes along and he says, hey, Ruth, I'll buy the property and I'll take responsibility for Ruth. And again, it's just no small act of kindness and sacrifice here, especially when you consider that she was a Moabite woman. I mean, the men of the area would have despised her, would have nothing to do with her. But Boaz here goes out of his way to redeem her. But first, Boaz has got to kind of go to the guy who's got the first right of the refusal. And so he goes to him and say, hey, there's this land, uh, and you can redeem it if you want. And the guy doesn't even get a name, but he's just like, yeah, I'll buy it. But over in chapter 4, verse 5, Boaz responds, oh, one, one thing. There's one thing that you need to know. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also, also acquire uh, Ruth the Moabite. It's like, hey, she's a part of the package deal, so you've got to take her. But... Uh, and it's just fascinating because in verse 8, uh, the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, By yourself, I'm not interested anymore. I didn't know that there was a Moabite that came with the land. But then these next words, it says, Then Boaz announced to all the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. And so Boaz pledges and promises, I'll take care of Naomi. I'll marry Ruth. I'll honor her deceased husband, and I'll have a child with her. The family line will not end with me. I'll fix everything. I'll be the redeemer. I mean, Boaz is just an amazing man who had no legal obligation whatsoever to do this. I mean, he is motivated by nothing but pure grace. And he was a generous and caring and godly man, and God rewarded him for his goodness and for Ruth and Naomi and even Boaz. I mean, it's kind of like one of those Christmas presents that you open that, well, when you look at the box on the outside, it's a different box for what you really want. Um, But when you tore into it, you found that it is something better something that I had hoped for. It's kind of like this YouTube video that I saw this past week of this young boy who was expecting and hoping for an Xbox, but when he tore into the package, it was a box that displayed Tupperware on the outside, you know, and, and if you watch it, I mean, you like you, you hurt for him, you know, because he's so disappointed. It was this cruel joke that I would never do on my kids um, because then when he got into the box of Tupperware, he really found and discovered that it was the Xbox, and here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I really think and believe the story of Naomi and Ruth means for all of us. Before you give up on God because of painful, difficult, disappointing circumstances in your life, I mean, before you stomp out of the room and slam the door shut because you don't like what you see on the outside of the box, just be patient. Take time to open the box to see maybe what God has inside. I mean because if the box is your life and the outside of it is labeled pain or death or addiction, adultery, widow, divorce, cancer, terminated, infertility, abuse loss, debt, poverty, job loss, unemployment, that label, or that experience doesn't have to define your life. I mean, your story doesn't have to be a story of pain and loss. Because when Naomi finally opened the box, I mean, she found a really cool present that was on the inside. I mean, Boaz and Ruth had a baby boy. And verse 14 says that the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. And so it looked like Naomi's life was over. It looked like her family was over, but now it's redeemed. And Naomi has gone from a bitter woman uh, to a blessed grandmother. And the final picture that we have of Naomi is a woman who's holding her own grandchild. I mean, she's no longer bitter Mara, but she's sweet and pleasant. Naomi again, and Boaz and Ruth, as we mentioned, had a child together. And verse 17 says, and they named him Obed. Now, check this out because this is where the whole story of Bethlehem comes back together. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's King David great-great-grandson is David. And that's why when Joseph and Mary returned to their city for a census, they returned to the city of David. They went to Bethlehem. And it could also be said the city of Naomi. We could also say the city of Ruth and Boaz and even of an old prostitute named Rahab. Which is fascinating when you think about it that the lineage of Jesus includes people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, Talk about a God who redeems. Your your story doesn't have to be about loss. I mean, it really can be about your response to that loss. It, it can be about a God who is not finished with you yet. And if you find yourself in, in the pain of it all today, be patient and turn to Him because He is faithful and He is good and He is a God that redeems. Let's pray. Lord, we we just thank You. We thank You that You are a God who redeems. And what a great example, what a great reminder for us today in this story, in the story of Ruth and Naomi and others, how ultimately it really is a story of Your Son Jesus who came to redeem us, that He is our kinsman redeemer. He's our guardian. And He is the one who purchased us Saved us with his blood and with his sacrifice. And God, we thank you for that gift for our lives. And if you're here today and uh, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but maybe you know the pain and you know the frustration, maybe, I mean, what would it mean for you today just to take a moment to say thank you for Jesus? And now give me the faith to trust that you can redeem my story and my life too. And maybe just to pray, you're the Lord of all. I trust you, God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe today's the day where you reach out to Him and you invite Him into your life as your Redeemer. You can do that. You can just do that with your own words. Just say, God, I need you. I need your Son, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Redeem my life today. To be able to say, you are the Lord of all. I am trusting you with any and every situation of my life. God, would you give us the strength uh, to surrender every piece of our story, every day of our story to you. Lord, would you not let us have a story of loss, but Lord, would you allow us to have a story that tells your story of redemption. God, that you're the Lord of all, that you know all the pieces, and you'll put them all together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.